0: Today's episode is brought to you by Curve, a card and digital wallet service. You'll be hearing more about Curve later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Today, we have the ultimate dream team when it comes to central banking and macro. We've got George Goncalves, head of U.S. Macro Strategy Institutional Client Group at MUFG, and of course we have Joseph Wang the fed guy himself former senior trader for the New York Federal Reserve uh, author at fedguy.com as well as author of Central Banking 101 gentlemen great to have you here
1: Great
2: to be on with you guys
1: Pleasure to be here and great to see you again George
2: Likewise I mean you're you're one of my favorite fed guys you know so it's appropriate that you have the <laughs> fed guy title
0: Yeah and George uh, your t- Twitter uh, handle at Strategist very appropriate as well as you uh think of all things fixed income, which you know on the short end of the yield curve, very influenced by central banks, as we've seen this year. Uh, I want to ask you, what is your outlook for 2023? And start with central banking, and then you can go outward to sort of assets and the economy in general. Uh, George, how about we start with you?
2: Okay, sure. Yeah, so our, our 2023 outlook really comes down to, we're going to start off with a world that's still concerned about inflation but we're going to pivot to eventually growth concerns. And, and I think that's going to be really the, the big kind of surprise by mid-year. I mean, inflation, we'll still be debating it. Is it cyclical, structural? Um, but it most likely is heading lower. The question is, what is the trough? Yeah, at what level do central banks feel that they actually have you know, corralled inflation and they're going to be confident to both uh, move away from tightening but also potentially having to ease, maybe, we'll see, uh, I do think the Fed, uh, especially what we heard at the December meeting, uh, they're committed to price stability or bust, as I call it. They're going to they're going to go for it, uh, and so I think uh, we're going to see at least a run towards five percent, which was in the the SCP uh, projections. I think they they want to do that. They're going to get there. Remember, that's twice the level of the long term uh, kind of neutral rates. That's a very restrictive policy. Uh, at some point, this high level of rates. Will both compete for you know capital as investors will probably stay more defensive because we're likely going to potentially fall into a recession as well. Uh, I have you know relatively high conviction of about seventy five percent, which is the highest I've ever been for a recession. This is a very aggressive central banking uh, tightening world that we're in. Liquidity is being drained so fast, and we're seeing it in the real time data. Things are you know really coming you know coming uh, uh, unglued pretty quickly, and so I think you know Q one Q two we're going to see it. <clears throat> There's a lot of debate about the true healthness of the labor market. I think we're going to get more indications of that early in the year. But we're in this kind of ambiguous period in the first couple of uh, months, weeks of the year. That I don't think we'll know for sure. And I think that's where you know, the central banks will have this window to keep going as far as they can until either you know the economy breaks or the markets break or both.
1: Joseph? So I think next year will be the year where team transitory is defeated, so <laughs> I so I, I agree with with George's assessment, and he has a great slide deck, which I'm sure we're going to, and that we'll probably have a recession next year. But I think there's a big difference in in um, how that recession will occur. So structurally speaking, well, so fundamentally speaking, when I think about recession, recession is basically an economy is producing fewer goods and services this year than the last. Right? It's it's not producing as much stuff. But that can happen in one of two ways. For the past few decades, it was always happening because there's less demand. So let's say you're a car factory and you're producing 100 cars a year. Next year, if you produce 90, um, usually in the past, it was because people were not interested in buying as many cars. That's why you produce fewer cars. So that's where you get your recession. Um, But there's another way you could have recession. That is people still want to buy cars, and yet the car company wants to produce 100 cars. Or even more, but it can't because it can't get as many uh, resources, enough inputs to produce that. It's a input constraint, or as they say, supply constraint. So that I think is going to be more obvious going forward. Now, not due to COVID, that's kind of the red airing. Many people think that supply constraints were COVID related, and they were, but not all of them. The bigger supply constraints that are not temporary, but structural, I think, Um, globally in the US and in Europe are labor. And that's what the Fed is grappling with. There's a lot of good research showing that we have a workforce that's just not growing as much as it used to. And that's why we have such low unemployment and high, um, uh, high wage growth. But in the Eurozone, in addition, they're going to have to grapple with the fact that maybe these energy costs that were transitory are not transitory because maybe that gas from Russia just isn't coming back. And that means you have structurally less inputs, and so you're not able to produce the same outputs. That's recession, of course, but it's recession in a way, lower supply, that makes prices go higher. And so both of these, fewer energy and fewer employment, uh, fewer workers means that there's less capacity to produce stuff, so you could have a recession, but you could have one where prices remain pretty high. And I think that's just not in the market pricing at all. Um so I think that's that's probably my best guess of what will become evident next year. and um, it's it's going to be a big big change from what we've been used to the past few decades.
0: Uh, gentlemen, at the beginning of this year, a long time refrain from uh, many folks, anyway, you know, I said it up myself, uh, entertained the idea was that the Fed simply can't hike because there's too much debt. Now at, at interest rates sit at four point five percent. it's December 2022. Uh, how would you evaluate that idea? Is it safe to say the Federal Reserve can hike, George?
2: Look, I, I I'm I'm was equally surprised. I mean, I, I changed my view um, towards the middle of the year once we started to really see how uh, persistent inflation was and and how committed the Fed was to both raising uh, rates in a very aggressive manner. Uh, you know, kudos to, to Joe. I mean, we we had this conversation earlier in the year. Yeah, you know, he was spot on. Like you know, going towards four was definitely the right. Right trajectory. So, you know, good, good, good work there, Joe. But I, I do think you know the re- one of the reasons why I think many in the marketplace and just in, you know, investors at large you know, have been skeptical of a Fed that would really you know deliver on tightening versus just easing. We've, we've lived in a you know for the last 15 years a low rate environment. Uh, the central banks you know, in theory has always had the markets back, and you know and there was you know how many memes were out there about. You know, printers go burr uh, and and just the, the amount of QE that took place during that time frame especially post covid and so it was it was understandable why there was a, a very healthy level of skepticism by you know the broader markets that the fed wouldn't raise or dare to raise rates this aggressively and and also you know the concern that something would break along the way and you know perhaps it's the the nature of you know the fact that there's still a lot of liquidity in the system there's still you know uh, people that are still you know With the kind of buy the dip and FOMO mentality that have not really allowed repricings to take place this year. We've had a decent uh, correction in risk assets, but not as much as maybe one would have thought. At least I would have thought if the Fed had, you know, has (laughs) raised 425 basis points in in a matter of seven uh, instances. That's very aggressive, as you're seeing here on this chart here. But this is the fastest one, you you know, barring the 1970s, which is a completely different period in modern day finance. This was the fastest, most aggressive Fed in an environment that, you know, we, we do have high debt loads. Uh, one of the benefits for the U.S., of course, being that a lot of this debt has been fixed, both in the housing market as well as in the corporate sector. The corporates were, you know, smart and pre-funded a lot of their issuance during the COVID lows in rates as well as the tights and spreads. But that's all backwards, right? Now, now going forward, if the Fed is truly committed to getting rates towards five or maybe higher and they're going to keep them there, this is where the rubber
0: hits the road. Yeah, this is absolutely a, a brilliant chart, George. Uh, the y-axis is the cumulative basis points where 100 basis points is, is 1%. And the x-axis is the hike count, which is, I guess, the FOMC meeting at which they are hiked. Interestingly enough, I think if if the uh, x-axis were months instead of hike counter or years, it, it would be even more drastic because December uh, 2015, when that hiking process started, they went they went very slowly, and I think there were FOMC meetings where there weren't hikes. So yeah, this is an extremely rapid uh, uh, pace of hikes. Uh, Joseph, yeah, how would you know having been at the Federal Reserve, how does the Federal Reserve think about how uh, rate hikes? Slow down the economy and and fight inflation. Uh, do you think that the Federal Reserve, you know, it's Jay Powell looking at this at this chart, um, or or, or <laughs> just the chart of the, of the Fed funds rate and say, "Then we did a good job this year"? Or do you think he says, "Wow, still a lot of work to be done"?
1: Uh, I think he looks at PCE and CPI and. At, you know, six, 7%. I, I don't think he's giving himself kudos yet. Yeah, that's um, uh, inflation so, <laughs> metrics. <I'm glad>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, the Fed has been pretty pretty transparent. When Jay Powell is asked how he thinks that monetary policy affects inflation, he talks about three channels. He talks about, um, of course, financial conditions. So things like the wealth effect. So people feel poor, uh, financial conditions tighten, equity markets down. He talks about uh, its impact on interest rate sensitive sectors like housing and on those sectors like that. Any sector where people have to borrow money to make purchases has, is strongly affected by um, interest rates. So it's housing and that's autos to some extent as well. A lot of people buy autos on, on, on loans and also through the exchange rate. So if you have a stronger dollar, according to, you know, um, some economic theory, let's say maybe stuff that you import becomes cheaper. Um, it's not actually like that in rep practice because most things are already invoiced in dollars, but that's that's how they perceive it, it seems. So I share George's surprise that we got so far and nothing really seems to have happened. Um, if you think back our last tightening cycle, and uh, let's, say, let's say we got to about no, almost two and a half, almost three. And at that time, I think it was about 2018, quarter four, the equity markets were falling apart. There was no Christmas rally that time. It was just selling every day. And yet here we are much higher and nothing seems to have happened. Maybe as George suggests that it really is just a lot of liquidity in the system. Maybe investors are, I guess, positioned differently. So they're not as vulnerable to things like that. I'm not sure, but it does seem like the financial system is a lot more resilient this time. Now about your point about the level of debt in the system, I think something to keep in mind is that a lot of the debt is public, and so the government obviously doesn't really care what interest rate they pay. And a lot of it, as George mentioned, is also fixed. So if you are a homeowner, your mortgages, for the most people, are around 3% or less, and so you're not really affected by higher interest rates. In fact, as inflation becomes high and as wages rise, that debt burden becomes even more easy to service. So uh, you're not really affected by, uh, by all what the Fed is doing.
0: Right, and uh, I think the point about duration is, is such a key point. How if you're borrowing and you're let's say borrowing money overnight, as Lehman Brothers did against its shaky collateral in 2008, uh, you're vo- vulnerable to uh, interest rates going up, or in the case of Lehman Brothers, just people uh, haircutting down that their collateral. But you know the the bubble, the debt orgy of the past two or three years has been so immense that so many corporates have financed themselves with long-term debt at very low rates. Uh, Nick Timmeros has, has written about this. And, you know, my favorite example is MicroStrategy. the sort of, you know, a company has a a technology business that's shrinking, uh, has a mediocre profit margin yet it issued convertible debt. That's not due until 2027 at basically at one basis point or sorry, 1% interest or or 0.5 interest. I mean like that company, you know, uh, is not vulnerable to interest rate rise it later did do a deal uh when the, the bubble got a little bit less bullion but i mean you know think of what apple and amazon did i mean amazon was issuing debt that's you know not due till till 2050 so 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 that's a, a key point
1: um, yeah. uh, Jack, to your point, the Fed has a financial stability report where they actually have a section on this, and they graph out the interest coverage ratio for the corporate sector. It's actually the highest in 20 years. So even though the Fed has hiked, everyone is able to easily afford their interest rate payments because their revenues have gone up with inflation, and as you noted, they have turned out their debt and borrowed at very low interest rates.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, uh, gentlemen. Now I'm going to ask you a point. You know, it's it's tough to answer, but where where do you think the Federal Reserve uh rates will be at the at the peak, the terminal rates, um, which now looks like it may be spring of next year? Uh and also by the end of 2023, do you think that rates are lower than that point? And I should say that the market now does. The market is pricing in, you know, a cut or two uh from now until the end of, of twenty twenty-three. Meanwhile, even though the Federal Reserve is saying it, it, it won't. And uh, George, I know you've got some fantastic charts on this. So uh, let me just uh, scroll here. Yeah, th- this is uh, what, what we've got here. Um, and, and please feel to refer to any other charts. So, uh, George, let's start with you.
2: Uh, let, let's, yeah, let's look at the dots. I mean, the, the dots obviously is a, a favorite pastime of all of ours. I'm sure Joe will relate to that as well. So this chart uh, just kind of compares the last two estimates uh, from the December meeting versus September meeting. And, you know, the Fed forecasters, by and large, raised their estimates for where they think rates are going to be over the course of 2023. In fact, you know, during the press conference, Chair Powell, you know, uh, specifically called out that 17 of the 19 sub, you know, folks that submitted have rates at five or higher. As you, can t- as you can see there, that little purple cluster in the 2023 area you know, is basically most of the dots are above five. Only two are under five, and, and in a way, Joe, I, I kind of joked around. This kind of looks like a, a subliminal message. It's like an upward arrow or a Christmas tree. I don't know. It looks like <laughs> the Fed is
1: the coordinating higher. like
2: that. It's like a, if you really look at it closely, it's like, it looks like a, like a, an up arrow. Uh, but anyhow, uh, look, you know, the intent is five percent. I think that you know, as long as you know market conditions and the economy. Are not completely falling apart by you know you know you know late Q1, early Q2. They're going to do that. Beyond that, I have less conviction. I do think that we're going to see a pretty big slowdown. Um, and look, you know, we don't know how equity markets are going to you know finish the year completely or start the year. And 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 because of that, I, I think that the rate of change matters a lot. You referenced two thousand eighteen. That last couple of weeks of the year, it, but things moved very quickly, and then we got the infamous Powell pivot. I think what we knew, we now know, is that Powell, you know, Chair Powell has conviction. Uh, the broader committee has consensus for now, at least for 2023, and they're gonna, again, they're gonna go for as far as they can. And so, unless something materially changes in the in the first half, you know, they're gonna you know, go towards five or maybe higher. I, I'm I'm around that level as my official forecasts. Um, for the end of the year, I do have rates heading lower because I do think something will break uh, either in you know the more levered part of the economy. Uh, and I do think that, you know, the, the housing market is really going to be suffering here. Uh, you know, it might not be an issue for those that have locked in rates. And I agree with that. But it does impact overall mobility. It does impact people that do have to sell for whatever reasons of either the life changes or they have new jobs. All of that will, I think, on the margin, reset the price of housing and you know, and rates are gonna be a big hurdle for many folks. Um, so we're gonna be gonna see housing really you know really subtract from growth next year. The auto sector is gonna really get hit as well. Uh and uh the non-financial type bank entities that are out there that have benefited from zero rates for such a long time period, they're gonna have a hard time operating in a rate environment of five percent. Uh, and you know, so I feel like that, that's all coming. It just hasn't happened yet. doesn't mean it won't. And I think by the summer end of next year, we'll see enough weakness at the end. Also inflation, I think will be heading towards the upper threes, maybe low threes by the end of the year at the Fed can move from five back down to four or so.
1: But yeah, like, like George says, they're trying to send a very strong message. Um, I think the FOMC sees that the market is uh, doesn't believe them, so whatever the FOMC says, they're The market is discounting pretty heavily, thinking that they're going to cut rates next year and very rapidly in 2024. And so, there, at least one person there is trying to send a message that um, they don't want the markets to think that way. And the way the Fed acts is that a lot of it is how the market perceives. So, if the Fed says something and the market perceives it to be hawkish, then it actually gets priced into the market, and then monetary policy works. Uh, people face these higher rates and the econ- economic activity slows down. But if the Fed says something hawkish and everyone in the market's like, whatever, and starts pricing rate cuts, then financial conditions ease. Um, the economy actually doesn't face that strict, economy, uh, stricter monetary policy. And so the Fed is not able to con- achieve its goals of slowing the economy down. So that's kind of the dilemma. And I think sometimes part of the reason why the Fed has to quote unquote over tighten just so the market Uh, Because if they don't do that, the market always discounts what they're saying. Um, I think that the Fed, the challenge for the Fed next year is is really going to be political. Because on the one hand, they have their full employment mandate. And on the other hand, their inflation mandate. Uh, It seems like there's a lot of political support to be a bit more dovish. I mean, right now we're at multi-decade unemployment levels. And you have angry letters from people like Senator Warren Telling the Fed not to destroy jobs, and you have uh, Brainerd, who was a well-known dove in second command. But if the labor market remains strong next year, and it could, because we have a labor force that's not growing the way that it used to, I think that gives cover for the Fed to remain um, higher for longer, as they as they expect. So it will really come down to just how much uh, the labor market softens, and as as Paula suggested. I, my own view is that it will remain stronger than the market expects because we really, we, I mean, I, I, so the Fed has been doing some work on demographics and it's it's really striking that, so if you look at projections of the workforce pre-pandemic, so in 2020, compared to what the workforce is today, uh, there's a difference about three and a half million. So we have three and a half million people working, that, less working today than was projected a couple of years ago. So, That's largely due to retirements, early retirements, and people who are retired not coming back to the workforce. That's not going to be fixed, so that suggests to me that the labor market could stay tight. Hey there,
0: I hope you're enjoying today's show. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Curve, a payment service that gives you power over your finances. The way it works is that Curve is an extra layer on top of your credit and debit cards that gives you additional cash back on the rewards that you're already earning. CurveCard has no foreign transaction fees and you can choose to earn your rewards in crypto. You don't have to, but you have the option. CurveCard also has a feature called Go Back in Time where you can retroactively change the card used to buy an item after you made the purchase, up to 30 days after actually a key concept in finance is optionality. When you have the option to do something, but you don't have to do something, this can be very valuable in finance as well as life. And optionality is exactly what Curve gives you to do with your wallet. So check out Curve to get $20 once you've downloaded the app and made your first transaction. Curve Card is powered by Hatch Bank. Terms and conditions apply. Now let's get back to the interview. I think George says, you know, his base case uh, is sli- very slightly above uh, 5%. Where are you thinking in terms of how high the Federal Reserve gets? And then I'd love to get into path dependency about, is it going to be 50? Is it going to be 25? Because you guys know I love to play that game.
1: No, I agree with George completely. I think they'll get to around 5%. Uh, I, I suspect m- my best guess is that they'll, they're able to stay there longer than the market expects. Because as I mentioned, the labor market is there's a structural uh, shortage of labor. And so that will keep unemployment low and wages high.
0: Yeah, George, you've got this fascinating chart about how the Fed's hiking now could be a classic boom-bust cycle in terms of the Federal Reserve being by- behind the curve. They they tighten too much, and the economy sort of deteriorates significantly. In other words, Powell is wrong that the risk, the, the biggest risk is of not tightening enough, and that if they over-tighten, uh, there could be a, a severe recession. Yeah. Tell us about this, and what are we seeing on the chart?
2: Sure. I mean, so this chart actually has a, a couple moving parts to it. And and it's really, you know, there's it's a combination of the boom of the reopening which you see here with the that black line on the GDP uh, you know, uh, shooting higher in the middle of 2021. And since then and we've been, you know, uh seeing growth decelerate throughout the whole time period. I mean, again, coming from unnaturally high levels which were not sustainable to begin with. Um and you know, aided and abetted with you know the fiscal stimulus money and a, you know, a central bank of Fed that was you know very accommodative for longer than what they should have been. I mean, uh, in many ways, after you know, you know Vaccine Monday in 2020 and just in general the early part of 2021, there was a lot of signs of ready that the economy was back on track. We're going to going to be heading towards there, and then we had more stimulus on top of that. So it was just way too much money chasing too few goods and services. A lot of it also you know, because of the pandemic and the disruption on the supply side. Nonetheless, you had a big classic boom, and now we're on the other side of it, which looks like a bust in my opinion. And if you look at the Bloomberg forecast for economists and even the Feds, which was I was completely floored when I saw the SEPs for their for the Fed's GDP outlook for 2023, which is basically in line with most forecasters, of 0.5, which you know, in, in any other realm, that's basically stall speed for the US economy. The you know the plus or minus standard deviations around your estimates, yeah, you, know, you can be at one and a half percent, you can be at negative growth. So that's as close to a recession call from the Fed as I've ever seen one. Whoa, whoa,
0: whoa, George, that's not a recession. That is that's what we call very slow growth. It's not going to be a boom time, but it's not a recession. It's very slow growth. No, very yeah. slow.
2: Look, it's, that's cloud cover for for that. Um, it's close enough to a recession, if not a recession, <laughs> because you might have a couple quarters that are deeply negative and then it all averages out. That's besides the point. Right? I mean, we, we know it, which, I mean, the Fed knows it as well. It, you know, it, not saying that they're trying to engineer a recession per se, but the consequences of their actions and what they're trying to do by trying to, you know, insert more kind of slack into the labor market, to, to, to Joe's point, it might be hard. You know, maybe, you know, it's not a perfect black box where the Fed can move all these levers. and engineer um less job growth because just that's just not necessarily how it works they're trying to make you know financial conditions tighter they're trying to make the cost of of, of uh, money more expensive and the quantity of money through less liquidity less available all that is part of the you know the big you know uh, tools that are hard they're not super precise and it take time to work their way through but the, the bottom line is that you know they have been aggressive and they're going to take us to a higher level and try to stay there over the course of, of 23, and, and most economists, which you know, have been proven wrong, and that's that's you know, facts for the least the last 18 months. You know, most economists do think that we're heading lower in inflation over the course of of 23, and so at some point you do get an intersect of the Fed's going to be above where inflation is. I mean, like where the Fed funds rate will be above, and you'll have a positive real rate, which is again what they've been uh, claiming they want to see. Anyhow, so you'll have a positive real rate. Low growth. I mean, that's really a, that's not a really great environment for for asset classes in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, does the Fed relent? And that's that's really where I'm coming from. Is like, like what forces them to relent? Is it just that the inflation is like clearly going in the right direction, or uh, jobs and or the markets? I think a combination of that, jobs and uh, weakness in overall growth. Takes down inflation uh, enough, and then you get some sort of financial, uh, you know, stress in the system that you know sees them cut rates, but not back to to zero. And I don't think the days of QE are coming back uh, for a long time, unless something really bad happens. I agree that the system is much more stable now uh, and much more resilient. To Joe's point, and so like w- w- we're basically seeing a textbook recession engineered by the Fed. And the weaker credits and the weaker firms are going to be the ones that are going to, you know, have to live, you know, see if they can survive through that. And if they can't, it's just the natural kind of process of, of the order of business.
0: Right. Th- thanks, George. And when you say a natural recession, what do you mean? Because, you know, two of the most conspicuous recessions in my lifetime were 2008 and then 2020. But it's my understanding that those are actually not what you mean by natural recessions, right?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, those are, those are unique in, in so many different ways, which we don't have time to go through. But I mean, <clears throat> obviously uh, one being a health driven, global pandemic that disrupts everything. And then you have, you know, responses that were too aggressive in many ways, but in hindsight, no one really knew at the time what was going on. And so you had, you know, you both policymakers on the fiscal side and monetary policy side, overdo it, And then it's led to the problems that we're dealing with today. And then 20, 2008, was a you know, culmination of many years of both financial deregulation and a system that was not really set up to survive you know, uh, really big shocks. And it, and it clearly showed, and the Fed had to come to the rescue there too. This is not the case. This is actually a more like a 2000, 2002, or a 1990s recession, or you know, an early 80s kind of recession. Again, no two periods ever are alike. But the point being is not it's not, it won't be triggered by a financial sort of accident, I don't think. This will be just a, many of us have characterized it like the boiling frogs or boiling lobsters, you kind of, the Fed's turning up the heat and eventually, you know, you have dinner, which is gonna be the other side, you know, you know it's, the, it's the lobsters that we're gonna have to kind of you know, deal with.
1: Well, I'll just add to George's point, actually. So George makes a really good observation that the Fed is basically saying that, you know, we're gonna be at stall speed, not exactly a recession. Yeah. I think he, Powell was asked that. He's like, no, no, no recession. We're still growing, right? Our forecasts are positive 0.5%. But he also forecasts unemployment going up 1%. So how do you have like, you know, let's say a million fewer people working and yet you're still producing more goods and services? That, that doesn't make any sense. So it's, it's very much, it seems like some kind of, I don't know, euphemism or political cover to say that. Yeah. We're trying to engineer, engineer a bus cycle as George suggested. It's just how they think that they can get inflation under control.
0: So we're recording on, on Friday, December 16th. This will air uh, much later. So that's actually why we're doing more of a long-term outlook, which I actually think is is more meaningful. Like, you know, this interview could still be relevant to people, you know, watching many, many months, maybe even years later. Um, but the, so yesterday, the ECB met as well, that European Central Bank, as well as the Bank of England. Uh, they hiked rates, I forget, uh, 50 50 or, or something. But yeah, you, I, I I didn't pay attention. What, what, how hawkish was it? People are saying it's very hawkish.
1: Yeah, it's very hawkish. So, VCBA did two things. First of all, uh, Lagarde was very clear that you know, and she said this: this is not a pivot. This is not a pivot. We're <laughs> we're we're going to keep hiking. <laughs> she, she, she's very 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 careful that the market not think of what she's doing hiking the old 50 instead of 75, like she did last time, that she's not going to be cutting rates soon and then being really all dovish. She wants you to know that yes, the ECB is mega hawkish. We're very concerned about inflation, which is higher there than it is in the US. So they're going to keep hiking. So they don't want people to price in rate cuts. That's what they don't want to do. They want it, the market to price in. Remember what I mentioned before, a lot of uh, central bank policy impacts to market expectations. She wants the market to price in higher interest rates to slow down the economy so that the inflation will go go away. And she does something else. She says, we're going to do a little bit of QT. Uh, We're going to start with about $15 in next March, and maybe we'll go from there. We're not really sure yet, so we're still thinking about it. So that's that's what she did, and that had a pretty big impact on on the interest rate markets. So you had yesterday, so the day of the meeting, you had the European sovereign bond sell off 10 basis points today, the day after, another 10 basis points. And we i was—we were just talking with George about this earlier. And global sovereign bond yields are, are connected. So if you have the ECB doing something like that, uh, doing QT and making Eurozone sovereign yields go higher, that's going to drag interest rates higher in the US as well. And we saw a little bit of that today, although I think recession fears seem to be uh, pushing against that.
0: I want to explore a topic which is is it possible that central banks can maximize their optionality ab- about tightening financial conditions without actually having to tighten uh, and then sort of trick the market? So if, if I was a central banker, I would want the, F- the market to believe that I wouldn't cut up until the minute that I actually do cut. That way, financial conditions could remain tight and inflation would, would go down. To what degree that you, do you think uh, you know the Fed as well as central banks across the pond are, are, are playing that game, uh, George and then Joseph?
2: Sure. I mean, look, I think um, the official forecast that we got from the SCP is a, a version of that sort of forward guidance. I mean, and, and, and the fact that, you know, the, the messaging has been consistent. Um, and I think that you know, one thing, and, and I'm sure Joe will, will, will agree to this, is that the Fed is very collegial. And, and in general, you know, at the committee level, it's not like we get a lot of dissent. I mean, whereas in like the BOE's case, and yeah, there's a lot more kind of pushback and, and there's more uh, chances for some members to actually dissent more often. Um, I think that the, the FOMC will probably stay uh, unanimous and hold together uh, as long as they can about that. We're going to keep rates high And once they get to a pause, whatever the number that is. So, you know, we'll get to a high level rate. They're going to eventually have to deliver the message that they're not hiking, but they're staying at a uh at a high rate, because they <clears throat> truly want to make sure that inflation, the job of fighting inflation, is, is done. You know that, that you know it, it's, it's going to come mostly through the Fed speeches, through the communiqué, through the, the official uh, documents that are released after the, the meetings, the minutes, like anything and everything that the Fed can do over the next six months to convince markets that you know they're they're uh, in it together, uh, they they want to get the job done, and they're not going to waver. Uh, I think that's going to be the messaging, and it's going to be a, at some point it's going to be a hard message to, to to deliver convincingly because I do think inflation is turning lower. Now the question it's turning lower mathematically just because just mathematically it, it's hard to have uh, the rate of change get higher and higher unless you know you have a spiral of, of prices. Uh, so we're going to see a slowing down of inflation. It'll still be high compared to the Fed's mandate, but nonetheless heading in the right direction. So that's going to be this kind of um, <clears throat> challenge for them to sound convincing while inflation's heading lower and the economy is weakening. But I think they can do it for, you know, three to six months once they, they hit their peak. And that's why I feel like, you know, typically uh, most Fed uh, pause cycles don't last for longer than six to nine months. The longest one or one of the longest in recent history was the 2006-2007 experience, which again, that ended, you know, ended badly. Uh, but, um Nonetheless, they were at, at you know five twenty five back then for fourteen months. I'm not sure they could pull it off for, for a full year.
1: So I think that that's kind of what they try to do. Uh, Jack, they try to implement monetary policy by shaping expectations. But the thing is, you know, if you don't carry out what you you promise to do, um, you you lose credibility and people won't really price that anymore. Um, Jay Powell has a well well documented instance of being a big pivoter in um, 2019 when in 2018, December dot plots, he was telling everyone that he's going to hike rates. It's going to be pretty hawkish in 2019. And then in the first quarter of 2019, it'll 180 cut rates significantly. And you know, if that that just kind of shows that sometimes forward guidance is not super reliable. And that actually made a lot of people in the market really mad. I remember being at the Fed then and we got a lot of angry phone calls by people who lost a lot of money uh, <laughs> thinking of the Fed would do what the dot plot would do. Um, so that's that's some one thing. But I, I'd also note, though, that when the market is forming their expectations, they oftentimes predict the future based on what they saw in the past. And, and, and the way that I look at this is that, let's say, post 2008, if you look at the short term interest rate futures, then they were always thinking that the Fed is going to go to 4% pretty quickly. And that's how the Fed was in the past. So they were thinking that the future will look like the past. Well, they didn't know then that the world has changed and the Fed basically stayed at zero for a decade. Um, maybe we're doing the same mistake today. We're thinking the Fed, because in the recent years they're always cutting, whenever the stock market goes down, maybe they'll do that again now. Um, I so maybe there's some bias there as well. So um, that that together makes it hard for, for the Fed to kind of shape expectations.
0: Bonds were like a very good investment because you were having like a positive slope at yield curve, but the the hiking was never, never realized. And now you're saying uh it, it could be the opposite and they, they could they could stay high
1: yeah that that's that's what i or what i suspect there could be some changes on both i mean i look at it in a couple of ways supply and demand i am sure george studies a lot as well the supply of treasury securities going forward is pretty high not just in the us globally you have a lot of supply in the eurozone as well and uh so and if inflation is structural because of fewer Um, say, labor and energy, then you could have inflation stay high as well. So together, that's a combination for high rates from, from my perspective
0: yeah uh now I want to uh, pivot, no pun intended um, to this excellent chart from from George and FUMG just on he, how he sees the cycle. So uh, high inflation limits policy flexibility in black. We had that earlier this year. The Fed tightens in purple. We had that in spades. real rates surge. That's the real rate reaction. Then in gr- uh, gray, we have financial conditions. Uh, FCI tighten. Uh, that's where we are now. However, there's kind of been a, a turn uh, uh, in financial conditions. Financial conditions have eased. Um, so I want to get both of your views. But Joseph, you first, talk about what are in financial conditions. It's uh, you know the dollar, credit spreads, equities. But which are the most important to? And uh, I know you you read uh, like you know a hawk the Fed's financial conditions or, or monetary policy report where they talk about financial conditions. And you know I remember in the summer or, or late spring they said you know, equities are still too high. Um, you know, they're still richly valued. What are they saying now? And, you know, what might we presume the Federal Reserve thinks about the going up in the stock market? You know, because that's what people talk about. Uh, you know, when, when, when Mike McKee from Bloomberg asked the question, financial conditions have eased over the past, uh, uh, you know, month or two, what do you think about that? I think that was, you know, Mike McKee sort of giving a T-ball to Jay Powell. If you wanted to swing it out of the park and have a grand slam, just to trash the market, have credit spreads blow out uh you know forward interest rates go up have the market believe them, and equities of course uh decline severely but to me that was the one instance in the uh December FOMC FMMC meeting in which Powell kind of wavered and he didn't he didn't really go for the kill so yeah both I I just want to you know have this chart up so uh our viewers can see it and uh then dive into financial conditions uh, about which you know, Joseph, you know a lot, and, and George, your charts following, which we can get into, are are also excellent.
1: That's a great chart. It's like the circle of life for <laughs> for, for the uh, for the Fed. Um, you know, you know, Jackie, you, you make a really good point that Paul really was t duffed. If he wanted to, he could have slammed slammed the uh, you know just slammed the market down, saying that you know I want I want to be more aggressive. Financial conditions are too easy, and so forth. And financial conditions are a combination of many things. Uh, like you suggested, spreads, equity prices, dollar, and so forth. And this question was posed also to um, John Williams uh, today, actually. And he answered it similarly to how Paul answered it. He's like, yes, financial conditions. Yeah, well, he didn't really focus on them loosening over the past few weeks. What he focused on was that they're a lot tighter over the year, which they are, of course. Interest rates are a lot higher over the year. I mean, look at things like mortgage rates. So I guess they're hoping that uh, even though financial conditions have eased over the past few weeks, that they're at a level that they're um, tight enough to to constrain the economy. So I think they're operating on the basis of, you know, as you suggested earlier, there's some kind of um, R star where you get there and you're above it, you're becoming more restrictive and maybe they could be right. So, just to add a little bit, why I don't think that RSR is a very useful concept. When you're when you're looking through interest rates, you're really only caring about people who are constrained by interest rates. And you know, more and more of the what's happened in the economy is done by things like government, which is not constrained by interest rates at all. And so, you have tremendous fiscal spending. And how do you figure that into your framework? They're they're not constrained by financial conditions as well. And also, when you're talking about things like the natural rate of interest, there's some path dependency to that. If you already have a lot of people who are locked in at, say, 3% or below mortgages, how does tightening financial conditions affect them? So it's going to be a big experiment to see how that framework works uh, going forward because of these concerns that I've that I've mentioned. But if they're right, then yeah, um, financial conditions are loosening, but they're still really tight and maybe they're tight enough to bring inflation down. And certainly there's evidence that suggests inflation is abating.
2: Yeah, look, I'll I'll pick up on some of the things both Joe said and what you said at the beginning, Jack, that, you know, that in the press conference, FCI did come up a number of times by some of the reporters asking questions. But even in the opening remarks, uh, Chair Powell did mention something. He did did say it's important that over time, they, meaning financial conditions, reflects, you know, the policy restraint that we're putting in place in order to return to 2%. I mean – uh, Joe will, I think, attest to this. That's as nice as a nice of, of a way of saying, "Hey, market, please listen to us. We are trying to tighten monetary conditions." That's the most polite way that you know the Fed and Chair Powell could have said it. But they're clearly sending a message. Maybe not, you know, going for the kill, and your to use your your language. But that he literally was being upfront that we we're we're kind of perplexed. We've raised rates again, four hundred twenty-five basis points. We're really fast at doing it. And oh, by the way, we're doing QT as well. We're doing quantitative tightening. Um, And yet the market hasn't really embraced it or in the last couple of weeks and months have have gone the other way. And he also mentioned that there's like short-term factors that might at times uh, see financial conditions operate to other devices or other uh, stimuli. Nonetheless, I do think they want tighter monetary conditions and ultimately for that to impact financial conditions. And then impact the wealth effect, which will then really uh, take away some of the sort of pressure on the economy. And we can kind of skip along. One of my favorite slides is this slide in here on page 24, which looks at the 12-month change in the S&P 500's market cap. That's the black line. The red line is the 12-month change in consumption as a kind of a growth factor because we're always growing. The economy is always producing stuff. and We're always seeing some sort of growth factor. I compared that red line to the black line and I've overlaid a lot of different crises that we've had over the last 20 years. Uh, We can start from left to right. The Fed hiked rates from 04 to 06. We had minor kind of ups and downs in the market. But it really only once we got into the deep heart of the financial crisis that we saw a big drawdown in market cap of the S&P. And so when you saw a five plus $6 trillion loss, which was big back then in percentage terms, but you, know, you and I, we, all of us, we don't consume percentages. We consume nominal dollars in our portfolio. And so when we open up our brokerage accounts or any sort of financial accounts, we don't think we're up 20%. We're like up X dollars. And when we're up X dollars in our head, and many studies have been done on this, that there's a wealth effect that if you feel richer because your portfolio of assets have gone up and you see it in dollar terms, you might be more willing to go spend on durable goods, take another vacation, you know, add to your home, do or upgrade your home or whatever the case may be. So wealth effect does work in the economy, especially in, in the Western economies like the US and the UK, less so in Europe and Japan, but definitely in, in the more Anglo uh, countries, Australia and so forth. So when you have a big wealth effect or, or, uh, or a drawdown in the other direction, you would expect to see less consumption and vice versa, right? And you saw that in the financial crisis. That red line did dip for the first time and, and, that, and that was very unusual. Then you kind of fast forward throughout the, the decade of 2009, 2019, we had ups and downs in the stock market, but the consumer was pretty resilient. So you had many drawdowns or you know, markets stopped going up for, you know, in 2015, 16, before we had the big uh, impulse higher, uh, we saw, you know, the, the impacts of QT one in that December of 2018 period, which you can see there, kind of vaguely, the little black line went down, and then we had the Powell pivot, and then the market came right back again. Then, of course, we had the COVID shock, which both you know impacted directly consumption because it was you know things were offline, and you had a big drawdown in the stock market for just three weeks, and then we saw the stock market more than double in the course of uh, 12 to 15 months. All of that kind of ebb and flow. I think is um, impacting uh, the way that both investors and consumers think, because they, they saw their wealth get hit, but then they saw their wealth completely inflate so quickly over the course of the last 18 months that they haven't felt the, the shock of this year. In many ways, like the whole idea of long and variable lags of when the Fed tightens, like that I think is a true testament this year that we haven't seen the full effect of how much tightening the Fed has done because it hasn't worked its way. Through the system, but we've had a drawdown. I mean, look at the black line where we are now. We've had about a eight to depending, you know, a ten trillion, depending on which metric you look at, drawdown in wealth from the stock market. And consumption has come off a little bit. I argue that you know, if we stay at these more depressed levels in the stock market, or potentially head lower, and if if we actually do fall into a more proper recession, and then corporate earnings get hit, and, and you get the kind of natural recession. Yeah, you know, I think that that at that point, people looked up at their portfolios, they looked up at their overall wealth and their outlook, and they're like, "Oh, maybe I'm not that wealthy. Maybe I'll consume less, hire less people, and that's the way it should work." And, and if, if it's going to be a huge experiment over the next six to nine months. This is this is really what the Fed is getting at, I think.
1: This wealth effect is particularly sensitive for companies in tech, for example, because one of the ways that I think about this the tech companies basically hire people and pay them in stock. So they basically print stock, and that's their currency. And so when their stock price is high, they can go out and they can lavish these you know, catered lunches and go out and hire a whole bunch of people. And now that their stock is lower, well, in a sense, their money printer is running out. So they're having layoffs and they're cutting back. So there, there's that definitely that wealth effect that feeds through into the economy.
0: Yes. And, you know, to the extent that people were quitting their jobs so that they could day trade SPACs because they made so much money day trading SPACs and they were spending a lot of money. So not only were they spending more money, but then the labor pool is smaller. So wages go up even more now that the stock market is falling and, and day trading SPACs has uh, not done you well, unless you've been short. Um, uh, yeah. So now people are are uh, less wealthy and uh, they might go back to work. Um, George, I love this chart. I think the black line is the S P 500, which is only stocks, but then there's also the world of bonds, where uh, the the absolute the, you know the destruction there has been pr- particularly noticeable. Um, you know, I mean, if you invest in like thirty year treasury bonds, you're down what, close to thirty percent. And you know, if you did ask a month or two months ago, it was, it was even more. Um, how much do you think that plays a role in, in the wealth destruction, or is it is it only stocks?
2: Uh, I mean, I, look, I think they both play a role. I mean, it's the classical issue of the. 60, 40 bond portfolio did not work this year. Uh, bonds typically were a hedge, but they were a hedge because rates were declining all throughout the last 30, 40 years. And there was enough uh, of, a, you know, of a starting point each, at each economic cycle that if you know stocks went down, typically those in the recession and bonds would rally. This time we had the opposite happen. We had rates start from a very historical low, the Fed aggressively combating inflation, and all asset classes that were sensitive to rates got hurt, and bonds could not escape that. And in fact, you know, in for, uh, depending on which measure you look at, it was the worst bond market year in, in history, uh, or at least in decades. Um, if you don't go back into the 1700s or whatever, whatever it is, but you know, and the people were not trading hopefully like that. <laughs> but, um, but 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 all joking aside, this was one of the most uh, challenging environments for the bond market. Um, I think that investors typically still look at the wealth effect of uh, of, of um, growth companies and the impact to their equity side of the portfolio more than their bond side of the portfolio. Even though they lost money, they're upset about the hedge didn't work. But I don't necessarily think people view their bond portfolio as a total return asset class that makes them spend more. It's usually, you know, if they're in – High growth sectors in the, in the in the in the corporate side, which is equities, that's usually what kind of translates into more you know upside, right? So I think like they usually are, are, are viewed separately, but of course this year it didn't help that both went down.
0: Right. Thanks. Uh, I want to now ask about the just the pure impact of um, uh, interest rates, but particularly the yield curve on risk assets. And George, you've got this phenomenal chart we're showing now of the S&P 500 in black, the Fed funds rate in gray below it, and then uh, an interest rate spread that the 210 spread. So the 10-year treasury minus the two-year treasury yield in purple. And when the that yield uh, is as it is now below the black line, it's negative. That is an inverted yield curve, which of course is a warning that a recession is on the way, although it doesn't mean it's coming overnight. And as you said... You the time that you should actually be on full alarm, it's code red, is actually when the the, yield, the inverted yield curve starts re-steepening. So explain that theory to us, um, yeah, and and why it happens, uh, and and also how it shapes your your sort of outlook on risk assets and perhaps other assets too.
2: That's right. So this is one of the reasons why investors are, are viewing that you know if we get to a pause and the economy can handle these higher rates, so long as the Fed's not cutting rates, because when they cut rates, means something broke again, either in the economy or the markets or both. So if the Fed starts cutting rates and the, or the curve, or if, or if the bond market starts to anticipate that this recession is very much here and coming very soon, and then bond market starts to re-steepen the curve on its own before the Fed even cuts, which has happened before too. Um, when that starts happening, that is the early warning signal that um, we're, we're either in a recession or we're going into one uh, pretty soon, and that's obviously not great for corporate earnings. And so the, the shape and the speed of the curve shifts are, are, are super important. Uh, we've had these kind of very smooth, long cycles, as you can see, from the 1990s, really up until 2020. Up until like 2020, 2021, it did feel like all curves were uh, kind of natural. So in, in the sense that the you, you know, Fed cuts rates, the curve steepens. You see that um, with those pink shaded bars that I put on there. So the, the Fed funds rate goes down, which is that gray line. And then the curve was steepening. Uh, Initially, there was a uh, bull-type steepening that happened in the 1999 through 2001 period. But all throughout that uh, 2000, 2002 period, stocks were heading lower. They just didn't matter. It it didn't matter. The Fed was easing. (laughs) The Fed was easing because things were getting worse. Um, And I think people forget that. That that was the, the, the classical kind of recession that I was referring to earlier. Uh, Then we had the financial crisis, which was much faster. Uh, The Fed cut quicker. Uh, We, again, also had a pretty big bull steepening while that was happening. And then from like 2009 again through 2019, the curves just got flatter and flatter. There was one instance of a bear steepening that happened around the taper tantrum in 2013. But outside of that, it literally was always on a flattening posture because, A, the Fed had rates at zero for a long time, and then there was a reach for yield. And then when they did decide to cut uh, hike rates, they were very glacial about it. And then rates didn't move across the curve. It was mostly just short-term rates that went up. And then you got to where we are now and we, 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 we only maintained steepness for literally like a year, right? You see that the curve steepened out of the pandemic, uh, and out of the reopening, and then it completely reversed course and has been flattening ever since. That power flattening, both from long-term rates not rising as much as, as they should, as well as short- term rates rising because of the Fed, that's where we are now, like going from here, like how much further inversion can we really get before we get that steepening uh, move and I think that's that is the the trillion dollar question like and then that ties back to does that eventually force the fed's hand and eventually we do get cuts at the end of the year
0: right and george this this excellent chart goes back to nineteen ninety one and there are no examples of the yield curve I think. Getting more inverted than it is now, and you know if it's at eighty basis points of inversions twos tens, that means the Fed is, is pivoting in a matter of weeks. You know, um, but 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 the next chart goes back to the nineteen seventies, and it shows yield curves can get a hell of a lot more inverted than, than eighty basis points.
2: Yeah, no th- yeah, thanks for pulling this one up too. This this chart actually goes back to the sixties, and I'm using the threes tens curve because we did not have a two year Treasury before nineteen seventy six, so we've we've had a longer historical. Three-year security than we've had a two-year security just for the 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 history buffs out there, Uh, but you can look at it in the same vein. The threes tens curve is a you know big uh, broad curve, and and the point of this chart, what I've been uh, referencing uh, with investors over the the course of the year, is that look at the different regimes that we've been in. This is what I was saying to before, like from 1990 basically to 2020, we've had these kind of steeper curves, but very big curve environments where they would Steepen and then start to flatten and then steepen again and then flatten. Whereas pre 1987, pre the stock market crash, from the 1960s to the the early 80s, we had a very hyperactive curve. So the bottom part of that chart shows you the curve correlation, uh, curve um, uh, volatility, just from a standard deviation perspective. And you can see that the curve was much more volatile from the 1960s to the early uh, 80s than it's been since since in the last 20, 30 years. I, I argue, what if we're going back to this pre-1990s world where the curves are flatter, means you have higher rates and higher volatility. In a world of higher rates and higher volatility, means we're gonna be more inverted at times. And that requires a higher risk premium because investors just don't know this, like there's not less certainty about the future, about you, know, you may have a more activist central bank. They're, they're cutting and raising, cutting and raising, they're not going to go back to QE as quickly. They're not going to go back to zero as quickly. They may have to They may, 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 may make a mistake and have to raise rates again. And like so if you have that kind of more uh, uh, activist central bank world, you have a curve that moves around a lot more, but stays flatter and volatility is higher. That requires more risk premium for every asset class.
1: I, I agree with, with George. And I think what's, what's interesting to note is that when we had this mega inversion in 60s, 70s, and we also have very high inflation back then, so you know I think that's that's the key. There's a there's a inflation higher inflation regime, and that affects the reaction function of central banks, and that could, um, as this chart suggests, lead to more inverted curves because the central bank is rising rates, hiking rates aggressively to try to tamp down on inflation.
0: Mm. Uh, thanks. All right, now I want to talk about the Fed's balance sheet. Pretty much every question at the December Fed meeting was about rates or the economy. Uh, but of course, what's very important is the Federal Reserve's balance sheets. It you know buys uh, assets, treasuries, mortgage-backed securities from uh, the, the commercial banking system when it's doing quantitative easing, when it's doing quantitative tightening, which it's doing now uh, at a level which is uh, theorized to hit uh, $95 billion per month uh, starting September. It's not there now, and I want to ask you why uh, the Federal Reserve is not selling the treasury's mortgage backed securities it's merely letting those that are going to mature expire and then not buying them back so uh you know both of you know a tremendous amount about the fed's balance sheet how, how have you uh thought how how have you thought of the effects of quantitative tightening so far and uh also you know d- I, you know, I'm an amateur, uh, like a lot of people analyzing this, but I'm looking at the Fed's holding of mortgage-backed securities and just the Fed's balance sheet in general, and it doesn't look like it's moving a whole lot. Um, so, both those questions. Uh, let's start with you, Joseph, and then George.
1: So, you know, the Fed has this maximum limit of 95 billion, as George's chart shows. That they're, they're never going to be able to hit that because, for mortgages, for example, that is in part determined by how how frequently people prepay their mortgages. Uh, so when you prepay your mortgage, you take out a new mortgage, repay the old one, and the old one, which is held by the Fed, gets repaid. And so that that helps them do QT. But the prepayments so far, uh, because in mortgage rates are a lot higher, have been um, lower, pretty low. So they're they're going to fall short on their mortgage limit. It's not a target. It's a limit every year. So you're not really going to be able to do that. Um, but with, with respect to QT, T in general, though, I think there's a good historical analogy. There's a very good podcast by Joshua Younger on odd lots, and he talks about a historical precedent where the Fed owned a whole bunch of treasuries and was trying to get out, and that was in the 1950s when they were basically doing yield curve control, and now they wanted the market to have a bigger role, and it was a struggle back then to figure out just you know how do we get people to buy all these securities? Who's going to do that? And then there was a recession around then and that kind of bailed them out because when there's recession, there's a lot of people who who wanna buy treasuries. And I think a little bit of that is happening now. There's a lot of people who think recession and then think buy treasuries and that's putting a lot of demand in the treasury market and making QT go a bit smoother. Um, In the latest flow of fund statistics, now throughout the year, I've been wondering who's gonna be the new marginal buyer of treasuries now that the Fed is stepping out and commercial banks are stepping out. It looks like the new marginal buyer so far uh, in quarter three has been households. And that's a category that includes people like hedge funds, private equity funds, and private trusts as well. So I think, though, that this this concern for economic uh, weakness is is helping QT go smoothly. So we've been seeing some improvement in the treasury market in the past few, few weeks.
0: Thanks, uh, George. Yeah, tell us what we're seeing on this chart here. So the uh, purple is... Uh... U.S. Treasury holdings and uh, of the Fed. Black is mortgage-backed security holdings, uh, or maybe do I have the background? Yeah. Tell us what we're looking here and what's going on. What do you mean by mortgage-backed security roll-off continues to zero?
2: Yeah. So this is more just a hypothetical, uh, stylized example. The solid lines are the actual holdings and in, in the increases that took place over time, where you can see during uh, the QE post-COVID. Was was massive. Um, Then the kind of gray box in the middle—that's the QT 2.0. Because remember, this is the second time the Fed is trying to shrink their balance sheet. The first time didn't go over as well, or didn't really come to completion, largely because you know both there was a Fed pivot to to Joe's point, uh, and they started cutting rates. And then you also had uh, the the whole repo crisis, and then of course COVID hit. And so like this time around, they're looking and they want to shrink the balance sheet. I think they need to. In many ways, you can look to the RRP and view that, that there's just too much liquidity in the system. They should try at least shrink two trillion, at a minimum. I think, and this is you know just the way look, just looking at it mathematically, I think you you could, you could do that. But in order to do that, when you have a world as as Joe described, where it's hard for mortgages that are not prepaying fast enough, most of the burden is on the Treasury side. I think you know, and what I'm showing you here on the on the page, which I'll get to in a second. I think over the course of 2023, I think you know there's been, just like people have been trying to call that the Fed should stop raising rates, there's been many folks that have been saying they should stop uh, QT as well because it's disruptive. I mean, it's not disruptive in my view when you still have three and a half trillion of excess reserves uh, in the system and two trillion in RRP. There's still a lot of liquidity out there. Uh, so I think that QT will continue over the course of the year until Something either happens in the economy or the markets or both, like I described. And that's why what I'm showing you on the second part on the towards the right of this chart on the beige, this is my view. This is not, what, this is not official Fed policy. Uh, it's more my assessment that at some point, uh, if you take the Fed at face value, they want to get out of mortgages. And they could let them continue to shrink. Let's say that you know, the Fed is credible. The Fed wins the war on inflation. We don't get a second round. Or inflation's low enough that they can eventually cut rates a little bit, not go back to zero, but you know cut rates a little bit lower. That could help mortgages prepay, and then you know, this again, this is a lot of assumptions in this uh, in this diagram. But the point being is that I don't think rates are going to stay elevated at uh, these levels forever. Eventually, they come down a little bit, and then the Fed could uh, stop shrinking the Treasury side. And actually, that helps with the overall kind of who's going to be this marginal buyer of treasuries issue. And some of those funds would come from the mortgage side. They've done it before where they take mortgage proceeds and they buy treasuries. My view is that at some point, they could do both for the course of 23. But if we get into a recession and weakness, they'll probably stop one. And if they're going to stop one, it's probably the treasury side, less so the mortgage side. And they'll allow the mortgage program to continue to just naturally run off over time.
0: Guys, I, I want to end this conversation where we began, which is your, your 2023 outlook. And I think um, so much of this hinges on inflation. So I'm, I'm just going to use George's uh, chart. Uh, this is headline CPI, the, the Consumer Price Index. And the red line is realized year over year uh, increases in the CPI, what people commonly talk about when they say inflation. And then the various lines stemming off from that are assumptions. Uh, so uh, the uh, uh, red dotted line assumes that uh, in actual inflation month over month, I think is zero for the next 12 months. And this is what people mean by base effects. You know inflation um, over the past month, headline inflation I think was at 0.1%. but year over year, was at 7.1% even though 0.1% month over month inflation would account to something like you know inflation year over year inflation of, of 2%. So inflation could be at 0 month over month but the year over year figure will still be uh you know 6%, 5%, 4%, 3%, 2%. So it wouldn't it wouldn't take until October 2023. Wow. Uh for year over year inflation to be at 0 um Even if with with month over month inflation being at zero for every single month, Um, so this this paints a a variety of scenarios. So, uh, yeah, I I want you to just uh, share your thoughts on where uh, CPI will be. Um, So black, uh, red, gray, or uh, uh, let's see, um, pink. pink. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) All right, George.
2: Yeah, no, and again, this is also one of the. This is another one of those exercises where we're assuming a lot um, a lot can change. This is literally the information that we have now. But you're right, the base effects we can project forward, and that's what this math is doing, uh, and then you can give different different speeds of inflation. And that 0.2 uh, long-term average is really like 0.23. I just kind of rounded it. Um, that's the pink line. Now, if we get the historical run rate of inflation, which is, again, somewhere around 0.2, then by June we're, we're kind of getting close to what the Fed's targets are, because remember this is this is um, CPI, not PCE, and there's like a little bit of a spread between PC, uh, PCI, uh, PCE and CPI. So like it could, in theory, if we get just normal inflation from now here on out, by the middle of the year we can be kind of getting close to the Fed's targets, and that's one of the reasons why I'm a little bit a little more sanguine about the outlook, but. The black line, which is the dotted line, is assuming a double of the kind of speed that we've had historically, and you can. And it's also interesting to see, but like by June, that might be this, the, 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 the 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 nadir. But it could start to head higher from there, because let's say we have a shock in oil again, or something happens that we can't envision, or the China reopening goes over well and actually starts to increase inflation, in the global economy, or the recession is not that bad, and we actually kind of, or we don't have a recession. Like there's a lot of different assumptions that can happen over the course of the latter part of 2023 and then you might get a second wave of inflation so I think that's what the Fed is nervous about is that you know we might be able to head lower for the first six months but we won't know the other side of it it could either stabilize in the low uh, you know high to high threes low twos I'm sorry uh, low threes um, uh, uh, high low threes high twos and or it could actually start to accelerate again and the other examples are really just extreme examples to prove the point, which you made in the beginning, which is it's going to be really hard to get down to really no inflation. So that's just me me being dramatic. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, somewhere between the the, the black and the pink. I think,
0: guys, this has been great. Thank you so much. My final question for you is is a quick one, uh, and you know, George, if you can't answer it, uh, maybe you can change the question a little bit to something that you can answer. Um, but, you know, Joseph, you began this year with the stunning prediction that 10-year treasury yield would go above 4% by the end of the year. And at that time, you know, the op- that's something the options market was pricing in as a extreme tail risk. I mean, very, but no one was saying that. No one. Uh, it happened in September or October, even though now we're actually a, a little below 4% because we had a-, a rally in yield. So I want to ask the question I have for you, too, is where do you think treasury yields are, 10-year treasury yields are? By the end of 2023 and again george if you need to qu- change that question again a little bit to answer something a different question you uh, you can but joseph let's start with you
1: yeah that, i think that's a really important question so right now let's say when i look at the yields it looks like we were on an upward trend and we seem to be correcting back to about three and a half so i, I think the upward trend is still intact and the main fundamental drivers from my perspective are just one, the supply, not just in the US, but in the Eurozone as well. So global supply of duration is very high. At the same time you have QT by the central banks, not just the Fed, but the ECB as well. So uh, you're gonna have to have a lot of people who need to be attracted to buy those higher yields. At the Same time, you could have structural inflation or at least high uncertainty in inflation. So I think yields continue to trend higher. I think we could see a five handle sometime next year. Now, I know there is a uh, potential recession in, you know, let's say, sometime next year. And, you know, that would, I think, would if that happens, I think there would be a panic. But I think that would be just the correction in the overall longer-term trend towards higher yields.
2: Wow. George? Look, so, I mean, I'm not completely against that view. The only thing different, I think, is that, and, and again, I, as I mentioned at the start, you know, Joe did good good work. But I do, here's the thing, like, this year was the rate shock year. Next year probably will be the credit shock and risk market shock. And and it's also uh, you know, coming at a time where people still are kind of skeptical, and they do think the Fed's going to you know come in and ease and save the day. And so, yes, markets have this tendency to always try to rally, more so on the risk asset side, but Treasuries rally too. Now, if we move into a world where we have another year of losses, uh, at, at that point, I think animal spirits finally – Do give way. And and at the same time, because of all the supply that Joe described, which I agree, both from QT and just the need for issuance uh, for all these sovereigns, and corporates will come back to the markets again, I think. You're gonna see a lot more fixed income supply, and that is gonna crowd out other and other investment types. And at a time where there's less liquidity from central banks, which we've been accustomed to for decades. This the, the, the we're gonna go. This is another textbook thing we're gonna have. Most likely, a crowding out effect. We're gonna have, you know, capital move towards these high quality liquid assets that are gonna be offering you know relatively high yields, which we haven't seen for for decades. And that higher yields will attract a lot of capital, which will make it hard for rates to really sell off. Because at the same time, you're gonna have that recession fear in the background. So I think like you know, in, in many ways, we'll. The the bigger shock has happened already in rates. We can grind higher. I think we have at least one more bond market sell off before that's all said and done. But by that happening and then having a recession very close uh, nearby, that, you know, the capital is going to leave from risk assets and really support the, the bond market next year. And I think that will cap how high rates can really ultimately go. Mm. Uh,
0: thank you, George. Thank you both. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, George, your Twitter handle, if people want to learn more, is at Bond Strategist. Joseph, you are at FedGuy12 on Twitter. Uh, your writings can be found on fedguy.com. And of course, you are the author of uh, Central Banking 101. All right. Th- I'm, this is a kind of a, a silly question, but I'm just going to throw it out here. So in March or April, uh, the benchmark. Interest rate is going to move from LIBOR, uh, London Interbank Offering Rate, to SOFR, uh, Secured Overnight Financing Rate, and probably everything's going to be okay. Uh, this is somewhat of a silly question, somewhat of a joke, but what are the odds of a sort of a Y2K 2000 a scare of, uh oh, oh my god, these hundreds of trillions of dollars worth of ter- derivatives, it's uh, they're, they're now tied to this different thing, and there's a serious uh, sort of crisis. Uh, so again. Somewhat of a s- silly question, but uh, you, hey, you never know. Joseph, you first, and then George.
1: I think there's a lot of work that's been done by the Fed on this. So they've actually gone and uh, talked to a lot of market participants. And there's actually been legislation passed, I think, in the state of New York to kind of force the uh, transition from LIBOR to SOFR. So um, I, th- I think it'd be fine. And and by the way, if, if you are by the, using LIBOR, they were just kind of calculated differently so that it's SOFR plus, I think, 26 basis points.
2: Yeah, it, look, that's right. There's been so much work, and it's it's a non-event, in my opinion. I think the markets have been prepared for it, um, and it's not something to be really concerned about. We can debate the merits of what SOFR is and, and what it, it captures in terms of information value, but I don't think it necessarily is a, a bad omen for anything. And if anything, and again, it's been in place uh, for multiple years now. This has been like the most well-orchestrated kind of transition by the industry and by central bankers around the world. This is not just the a, a U.S. thing. It's globally happening. This reference rate changes have been happening. So I, I, I would I would put that one in, uh, away, Jack. Don't don't worry about it.
0: All right, all right. I can, I can sleep safe tonight. Sleep, sleep soundly. Guys, thank you so much, and thank you, everyone, for watching. Have a good one.
1: Bye, guys. See you, guys.